a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Ah, we've had an eventful few days, haven't we? And apparently there was some big ball game last night. I don't know much about it, but uh, someone somewhere said you have to choose sides, even though this conflict is far, far away from me and really doesn't have anything to do with me. I wasn't sure. Are they talking about the Super Bowl? Are they talking about uh, Ukraine? What? What? Which is it? Israel? Gaza? <laughs> it seems like there's there's a lot of interest in you. you got to choose a side on, on this conflict, which may or may not have anything to do with you. But nonetheless, welcome to the program. Got to mention my sponsors very quickly to thank them for making this program possible. They include quiltandsew.com, Ironsight Brewing Company, that's ironsightbc.com, tmcpnation.com, and lifesavingfood.com. So a couple of highlights. I guess we'll just kind of just do a little potpourri here to, to begin. Um, of course, Tucker Carlson pulled off his his interview with, with Putin. And I did watch, I, I, I have not watched all two hours. I'm about, I'm a little over an hour into the interview. So I can't say, well, I'm going to give you this comprehensive breakdown. Um, I, I don't even know if the, that I would give you a comprehensive breakdown. I will say this. I think it was good that, uh, that Tucker Carlson went around the gatekeepers, the narrative managers, the ones who want to keep us, you know, on the official narrative the official position of the united states government and boy it's it's earned a lot of anger for for tucker for doing this and and i'm not saying this from the standpoint of you know and and, and boy you know putin was vindicated on everything but i don't know how anybody could watch that interview and not come away with a very stark sense of contrast between the uh, mental acuity of vladimir putin versus uh, the mental acuity of of Joseph R. Biden. I mean, it's it's like night and day difference. In fact, there may have been more inter- more interest in that interview than there was in the Super Bowl last night. I don't know. Um, I do know this: James Howard Kunstler has a really great breakdown of all the different events that took place over the last few days. I'd kind of like to give you his take. So, if if you don't mind, let's let's jump in from there and. You'll, you'll probably appreciate what he has to say. This is titled Eventful Events. Putin confirms the United States is not run by its elected officials. Yeah, he came right out and said it. Here's what, uh, here's what James Howard Kunstler says. He says, Historians of the future, gathered around their campfires, poaching armadillo tail flaps in their own shells, will hearken back to the wondrous day in 2024 when they could watch and compare two heads of great nations present themselves to the world for assessment. There was Mr. Putin of the land called Russia, calmly discoursing in fine detail on a thousand years of his country's history. And then there was Mr. Biden of the USA facing the White House press pool, angrily refuting a special prosecutor's glum conclusion that the president was not mentally competent to be tried in court on the finding that he'd indeed handled, uh, mishandled rather, classified documents. Boy, that's telling, by the way, isn't it? Just as an aside, that uh, even the American press, 
now is coming out and saying, well, you know, they were the, the whole reason that special counsel was talking to Joe Biden in the first place was, do we need to file criminal charges as they did against uh, Donald Trump for mishandling of classified information? And and their res- the result they came away with was, well, you know, he's a Biden's a well-intentioned, sometimes forgetful guy. And, but they, they very clearly pointed out mentally, you know, cognitively, this guy is not 100 percent there. In other words, he's too senile to try with a crime, but go ahead and hand him that uh, nuclear football and the codes for the launch, you know, for the missile launch, and we can trust him to <laughs> to handle those things. Yeah, it raises some pretty interesting questions. Anyway, back to, uh, back to Kunstler's article. He says, The contrast between the two figures might even alert the mandarins of our Ivy League that something has gone very wrong in this country for a decade or more and could arouse suspicion among the faculties that they've been gulled into a false view of our recent history. Special counsel Robert Hur's report issued Thursday said it rather plainly, quote, In his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended, if it was 2013, when did I stop being vice president, and forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began. In 2009, am I still vice president? He did not remember even within several years when his son, Bo, died, and his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghan debate or the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him. End quote. I mean, that's, that's some pretty damning language. And James Howard Kunstler says this disclosure raises not a few uncomfortable questions. If Mr. Biden's declining mental condition was apparent to federal attorneys interviewing him, admittedly not top psychologists, then wouldn't the same picture present itself to scores of assistants and subalterns busily toiling with the president around the clock for three years in the White House? It's a good point. Not to mention the myriad other government officials, agency heads, corporate nabobs, and news media notables streaming through the Oval Office every hour of the day. And yet every one of them has gone right along with the, pre- the pretense that Mr. Biden's doing just fine and is capable of running for re-election. James Howard Kunstler says, weird, a little bit. He also says if there's been any discussion about Mr. Biden being in possession of the so-called nuclear football the briefcase full of launch codes for our arsenal of missiles and bombers, well, that's gone gone unnoticed in the press. In fact, he says, I suppose a conspiracy to suppress that chatter would be labeled a conspiracy theory, which also suggests that Mr. Biden's mental deficiencies have somehow infected the entire body politic of the USA. That is, much of the whole U.S. population is mentally unwell, living in a national hall of mirrors, and he asks, how did that happen? Is it possible there are branches of our government dedicated to driving the population crazy, a kind of ordeal by gaslight? That impression was only reinforced by listening to the president of our supposed adversary, Russia. Mr. Putin in his confab with independent journalist Tucker Carlson. For one thing, Mr. Putin dared express the likelihood that somebody or group of somebodies must secretly be running the the executive branch of America's government behind the mentally vacant figurehead, President Biden. But Mr. Putin would not venture to guess who that might be. What Mr. Putin displayed most of all was an air of prudence, an awareness that America's behavior has become increasingly and dangerously unhinged over the years he's been in power, requiring much delicacy and Christian patience not to worsen. 
Ukraine was at the center of the discussion, of course, since it's become a point of dangerous geographical inflammation, or geopolitical inflammation, rather. It's unclear whether the American audience was able to follow Mr. Putin's detailed disquisition on the history of Ukraine and how lately it eventuated in America's bungling effort to wrest it out of Russia's sphere of influence. He explained his view of events around the Maidan coup of 2014 and NATO's repudiation of the Minsk agreements that might have satisfactorily ended hostilities and provided a framework for reestablishing Ukraine's status as a neutral borderland between Europe and Asia. Now, Kunstler says Mr. Putin also confirmed my own conjecture that after the fall of the USSR, Russia had one overriding concern in foreign affairs, and that was to be readmitted to the European family of nations as a once again normal member, especially in trade relations, after 75 years of its peculiar communist experiment. Putin spoke of this quite ruefully as a lost opportunity to shore up Western civilization, now engaged in a mystifying act of mass suicide that Russia decidedly wishes to opt out of by strategically reorienting with the uh, BRICS bloc. Well, he says, as of last Friday morning, the U.S. is fraught with events unspooling. Kunstler says, as I write, with the dawn just breaking, there's almost zero opinion yet formed about these troubling matters on the vast Internet. But it will probably come in hot and heavy as the day ticks on. If Mr. Biden is truly mentally incompetent, as established more or less legally by special counsel Her, then there's the obvious remedy of the 25th Amendment, removal of a president for the reason of disability. A debate over this would seem unavoidable now, but the question also implies that Mr. Biden's charade of running for re-election must come to an end. Which raises a bigger question. What will the Democratic Party do about that? Kunstler says, you know, uh, not considerable part of our Ukraine campaign, pro- or our campaign, pro- our Ukraine problem, interesting Freudian slip, right? Is that our chief executive was for years engaged in bribery and money laundering misadventures there for which there is abundant and powerful evidence, meaning he, meaning he may have had very personal interests in keeping that country disordered and sending billions of dollars, there some of it surely embezzled, by the Zelensky government. By the way, you'd also have to be aware that the bagman in those operations, the president's son, Hunter, might well have misbehaved with drugs and prostitutes on his many trips to Ukraine as a board member of Burisma. Oh, there's more here. We're going to come back to it in just a few moments again. This is from James Howard Kunstler. I have a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Show notes for February 12th, 2024. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just finishing up this commentary from James Howard Kunstler. This is about uh, the eventful events of the last few days. Definitely there's been a pretty big shift within the Democratic Party. It's pretty clear. When you have the New York Times talking about Biden and questioning now whether he has the mental acuity to to continue on and to represent uh, the Democratic Party, particularly to run as president, run for president another term, Yeah, there's a lot of question marks where there were none before. And James Howard Kunstler says, now don't forget, too, 
that a big part of our Ukraine problem is that uh, Biden was involved there for years and years. In fact, he says, Hunter's self-compiled archive of round-the-world drug-fueled porn recordings on that laptop that the FBI confirmed recently was unquestionably his own suggests that Ukraine authorities may have their own recordings of him behaving similarly or worse. And maybe they're using those to blackmail President Joe Biden. Now, he says, we'll also learn the judgment, probably with remarkable dispatch of the Supreme Court, in the matter of Colorado kicking Donald Trump off the election ballot. Meanwhile, the case against Mr. Trump in Fulton County, Georgia, is falling apart in D.A. Fannie Willis's pathetically comical scandal, now with a new love nest twist, paid for with public money. And Judge Engoron and A.G. Letitia James might be weighing the fates of their reputations in the shabbily conducted and bogus real estate valuation fraud case against Mr. Trump, which will eventually be vivisected at some level of appeal. The old saying remains powerful, says James Howard Kunstler. There are decades when nothing happens and weeks when decades happen. That's kind of an elegant way to put it, and I think that actually quite accurately describes what we saw play out uh, last week. Just kind of a, an interesting shift, not just in, in terms of the, the political power alignment, but also just a, a shift in the whole energy of what's going on. Anyway, let's move on to a couple of other things here. Um, I wanted to share this quote with you. Just because I, I know there are some people who follow, follow very closely the idea of, um, you know, salacious material being made available to kids. And when I say salacious, I'm not talking about, well, that book has some potty language in it. I'm talking about books that are specifically targeted to young people that encourage them to embrace gender uncertainty or to masturbate or to engage in various sexual acts. These books are like cartoon books with their how-to manuals. And we're being told, well, this is important, you know, that kids have this presented so that they understand that such people exist. And, you know, this is, you know, a tip of the hat to the LGBTQ community. I don't buy it. And it's not because, gee, I just want to go around and impose my point of view on everybody. I like how AJK puts it. She's a wonderful writer and, uh, and I think she sums this up very well. She says, look, contrary to popular opinion, reading children books about being trans in school is absolutely indoctrination. Why? Well, she says, because kids have feelings. They have feelings about what they like and what they don't like. They have feelings about their bodies and growing up. And when they are reading books that claim that kids with the same feelings or who feel awkward or uncomfortable or prefer a certain kind of clothes or toys do so because they were born in the wrong body, well, then the kids start to wonder, well, maybe I was born in the wrong body too. So on top of the wrong body message, kids are also taught that trans kids are inherently brave and special. These are things kids really, really want to be perceived as. So the math is very simple. When you tell kids their feelings mean X, and then you incentivize X, right? So brave, so stunning. How many kids would not arrive at that uh, trans conclusion? How many would... would forego adopting X. You understand? Without those explicit messages assigning meaning to and incentivizing their very normal feelings of confusion or maybe, you know, self-loathing or, I don't like my body, I don't like what's happening to me. This is being imposed on kids. It's being presented to them as an alternative path. And that's called indoctrination. Claiming otherwise 
is disingenuous. Anyway, I think she makes a good point. And I hope that doesn't come off as, boy, you just have absolutely no compassion, you know, for these these young people with gender dysphoria. I just saw this article last week. I'm just going to mention this in passing. The American College of Pediatrics, 600 members of this organization, released a paper that I believe is the result of at least a dozen different studies, peer-reviewed studies they've looked at, which indicates that the hormonal intervention and surgical intervention that's being recommended for um, so-called trans kids, you know, the the affirming, gender-affirming care, as some hospitals call it, does nothing to reduce the suicide rate among those kids who suffer from gender dysphoria. By the way, I know there are people who would actually take great exception. They're not suffering from it. Well, I, I would have to beg to differ. Because if, if, they, if they were truly happy, if there, were, if there was no suffering involved, well, then the risk of suicide would, would be much lower, wouldn't it? But I thought that was pretty powerful when you've got the American College of Pediatrics coming out and saying, we don't recommend these invasive interventions on minors. They're not doing it from the standpoint of, yeah, because we're against trans, we want to erase these people, which is, which is kind of what the trans community is saying. But these, uh, these folks who wrote the paper for the American College of Pediatrics said, no, look, we absolutely, in fact, they affirmed this a couple of different places. These young people need mental health treatment and help. And they're coming at this 100% from a place of compassion. But isn't that interesting that they're they're so adamant about but these permanent things, giving them the puberty blockers or surgically, you know, mutilating them. It doesn't it doesn't stop the psychopathy. And I'm sorry if it sounds unkind, but I think we need to, to recognize mental illness for what it is. And as compassionately compassionately as we can, try to help those who are struggling with it. Anyway, all right, I'm going to shift gears here for a second. There's a, there's another topic I just want to touch on here briefly. Um, this is from intellectualtakeout.org. Laura Hollis is the author, and it's called Guilt Tripping Our Way to Self-Destruction. She says, everywhere we turn, the country looks like it's falling apart. Crime is out of control. Millions of illegal immigrants are pouring across our borders. Our schools are more interested in cultivating gender dysphoria and a proclivity for porn in our children than in educating them. The press routinely censors the truth at the behest of the government, which also increasingly prosecutes or opts not to based on political party affiliation. In sport after sport, biological males who've decided to identify as women or as female rather are taking away from actual biological women and we're told that we must indulge their delusions. Americans are asking themselves, how on earth did we get here? And even more importantly, how do we turn things around? I'd say that's a fair question. Now, Laura Hollis says most, if not all, of the major societal problems that we're confronting today are the direct result of abandoning the principles that are the underpinnings of American culture. In fact, she says, we've been guilt-tripped into abandoning them and we're reaping the consequences. 
So where does that guilt trip come from? I mean, back in the day, we used to call it political correctness, right? Oh, that wouldn't be very politically correct. You should change how you say that or you should change, you know, what you're doing because it's politically incorrect. Well, we've graduated. Political incorrect, uh, politically incorrect behavior, not enough. Now we've got to go with the whole woke agenda, which I've shared on this program and I still maintain. It's a religion. The taxonomy of what they believe, their their proselytizing efforts, the dogma or doctrines, if you will, the original sin for which they, they must continue to fight and overcome, it's all there. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I was sharing an article from Laura Hollis. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. Guilt-tripping our way to self-destruction. And boy, does she give some good examples of how we've been guilted. Well, you're an oppressor. You're somehow, you're, you're a racist person for, for what you're thinking because you believe in private property or you believe in freedom. Isn't that interesting? One of the things that they talk about here is, of course, the immigration crisis. People pouring across the border, getting free phones, welfare payments, housing, food, education, and health care, all courtesy of the American taxpayer. I think there's a larger story going on here, but I, I don't think I'll, I'll take so much time today to, to tackle that. But still, you start to see some, some really interesting things. The group that uh, violently assaulted police officers in New York City last week, arrested and then immediately released, flipping America the middle finger as they're walking out. You know, I mean, it's just, it's a little bit spooky. So what will happen to them? If they're tried and convicted, they're not going to be deported. If they are deported, nothing will happen if they try to return. Why is this happening, asks Laura Hollis. She says, because we've been guilt-tripped into accepting that demanding integration into American society is insufficiently multicultural and that America is an exploitative nation that somehow owes the world's poor billions of dollars that must therefore be extracted from American taxpayers. By the way, she points out American schools provide even more examples. Each week brings more amateur videos of violent behavior by students. Social media commentator Marina Medvin posted on X earlier this week a list of 53 Illinois schools at which no student, not a single one, was grade proficient in math. By the way, most of these were in Chicago. Now, these dismal results are not limited to Illinois by any means. Oregon recently eliminated the requirement that high school students be proficient in reading. English or math in order to graduate. Many colleges have eliminated entrance exams. So why is this happening? Well, Laura Hollis says it's because we've allowed ourselves to be guilt-tripped into believing that demanding appropriate behavior and insisting upon objective academic standards somehow is white privilege and that we must expiate our collective guilt as a nation by excusing the violence and catastrophic failures permeating our schools. Now, she gives another example here that, again, 
It just makes me very grateful for where I live, you know, in, in flyover country. She says, in states like California, Illinois, New York, shoplifting has become epidemic. Flash mobs steal thousands of dollars worth of inventory and are not prosecuted. Retailers across the country lost $112 billion just in 2022. Homelessness has been allowed, homelessness rather has been allowed to explode in our major cities, contributing to crime, disease, and filth that would have been unimaginable in America just 20 or 30 years ago. Stores and other retail establishments are closing in the downtown areas of major cities due to theft, crime, and generally unlivable conditions. Which brings us to the question, why is this happening? Because we've been guilt-tripped into believing that involuntary commitment of the mentally ill isn't compassionate and that enforcing shoplifting laws protecting property is systemic racism. Then, of course, you've got men who now insist that they can become women and vice versa. Minor children and staggering numbers of preteen and teenage girls with clear mental illness are being railroaded into chemical sterilization and surgical, manipula- surgical mutilation. rather. Teachers think it's appropriate to discuss their sexual proclivities with grade schoolers and expose them to pornography. Why is this happening? Well, it's because Americans have been silenced by buzzwords like cis-privilege, heteronormative, and transphobic. By the way, Laura Hollis says, enough. If these crises have been facilitated by our silence and our willingness to be cowed into submission... Well, then they can be addressed when we refuse to be cowed, when we refuse to be silent, when we refuse to use the nonstop lingo that activists demand be injected into everyday parlance, when we stop apologizing for the sins and imperfections of those who lived generations ago, and when we vigorously defend the principles that that represent, rather, the best of America. Because, she says, those principles built this company this country, rather, and abandoning them will destroy it. That's a pretty impassioned plea, but I don't see anything that uh, that she's up in the night on. Yep, we've, we've got our work cut out for us. By the way, let's talk a little bit about respect for authority. I don't know about you, but I'm seeing a definite, uh, if, if not an outright evaporation of respect for authority, definitely there's been diminishing People look at, uh, at politicians with a lot less respect in, in many cases. I mean, there are some true believers, but for the most part, people are kind of like, yeah, this, this really isn't, uh, isn't such a, a great place to put my allegiance. J.B. Shirk says, well, I guess we know where the Federal Aviation Administration got the idea to fill cockpits with pilots suffering from psychological disorders and mental deficiencies. The FAA, FAA rather, has been watching dementia Joe Biden fly the United States directly into the ground for three years and decided to do for civil aviation what the White House has done for peace and prosperity. Nothing better reflects a crash-and-burn leadership style than elevating unqualified people into positions where they can do the most harm. It's worked for the West Wing, the Pentagon, and the Treasury Department. Why not for the agency responsible for air traffic control and passenger safety? What could possibly go wrong? Oh, sure, perhaps flyers will die more frequently in fiery collisions or when unbolted aircraft doors shoot off into the clouds. But at least they will leave their this mortal coil knowing that the people who build and pilot consumer aircraft represent such an amazing infusion of diversity that even the dumbest and most temperamentally unstable among us 
have been included in the life and death trust exercise of not falling out of the sky. So that's what real equity requires. Redistributing the earned responsibilities of those who've demonstrated merit and commitment to those who've demonstrated mediocrity and unreliability. J.B. Shirk says that's why the globalists forced DEI standard, diversity, equity, and inclusion, across public and private sectors should be more accurately returned to DIE. Because wherever the deadly acronym dilutes excellence, living safely becomes less likely. Come to think of it, he says, Joe Biden is DIE's perfect mascot. Angry, confused, and incompetent old Joe is the chief dolt and grand poobah of an ass-backward system where the least capable in society thrive. Now, given the U.S. government's love affair with censorship and propaganda, he says, I sometimes imagine future historians piecing through shards of Western civilization in order to understand the reasons for its collapse. Well, according to the prevailing narrative, everything right now is tremendously great. We're told the economy is strong, that crime is under control, our borders are secure, that paying 20 bucks for a fast food hamburger is cheap, and endless war produces endless peace. According to the news media, Americans have never had it so good. How then, third millennium anthropologists might wonder, did everything go kaput so quickly? Well, J.B. Shirk says, hopefully someone in the future will stumble across a time capsule with Joe Biden's linguistically challenged press conference from the other day in which he angrily denounced the Potemkin special counsel's legal conclusion that while decrepit Joe committed federal crimes damaging to America's national security, he's nevertheless too senile to prosecute. The alleged president of the allegedly most powerful nation in the world betrayed his country, was too incompetent to stand trial, but remained perfectly competent to run for re-election, some future human chronicler might ask before letting out a high-pitched shriek. Eureka! Now I get it why everything died so suddenly. By the way, died suddenly might just become the catch-all epithet or maybe epitaph for our age. Right now, the medical community continues to destroy what's left of its reputation by refusing to connect the dots between increased rates of cancer and heart disease and the global rollout of the mostly mandated pharmaceutical injections, not only falsely touted as cures to COVID, but also falsely labeled as vaccines. Every time a 14-year-old athlete dies suddenly on the gridiron or basketball court, the ethically compromised killers in white coats throw out all kinds of ludicrous explanations for why healthy young people are losing their lives. It was stress. It was red meat. It was racism. Or the increasingly ubiquitous, it must have been climate change. J.B. Shirk says, it's funny if not disturbing, to see all the people who changed their first name to doctor struggle to reach the most obvious conclusion that an experimental mRNA serum rushed to market without necessary testing or proper scrutiny might be to blame. Elementary school children with a rudimentary understanding of the scientific method and medical ethics would understand the potential harm from requiring healthy patients unlikely to die from COVID to nonetheless be treated with untested vaccines. Yet the first do-no-harm swarm of group thinkers who are having trouble realizing that when pharmaceutical companies are using humans as guinea pigs to make billions in profits, you got a problem. And they jumped to and insisted the whole global population must be injected with possible poisons. Okay, this is where I'm going to leave you at a bit of a cliffhanger. We'll come back to J.B. Shirk's uh, column and finish it off in the final segment of today's show. That's coming up right after these messages. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Just want to finish off this J.B. Shirk article about uh, respect for authorities died suddenly. And I know for those of you who have refused the jab, that term died suddenly has special meaning. Not not in a gloating sense, but just in a, yes, isn't it interesting? Another person, you know, suddenly has, has shuffled off this mortal coil. But we're not allowed to ask if that could have anything to do with the jab. By the way, Toby Keith last week, that was one of the first questions I was asking. Was, was Toby, uh, was he vaccinated by chance? Anyhow. J.B. Shirk asks, why would you experiment on anybody unless it was absolutely necessary and then done only with informed consent? Why would you recklessly expand that experiment to the whole human race? Only the scientific experts could trip over such basic precepts of medical ethics on their way to creating a potential global catastrophe. You would think that the same medical community that unwittingly conspired with evil pharmaceutical companies to hook millions of Americans on OxyContin and other opioids would have been more skeptical when magical COVID elixirs were quickly developed and marketed as cure-alls. Alas, the gullible are only getting more gullible, and perhaps this is why climate change is still the globalist boogeyman that haunts so many pliant imaginations around the world. The unscrupulous authorities who lied about the efficacy of lockdowns, masks, and experimental vaccines would never lie about climate change, right? What kind of monsters would tell the world that carbon is killing the planet if the science isn't sound? Well, maybe it's the same globalist monsters who used COVID as a propaganda vehicle for establishing a great reset. And they're also interested in using climate change hysteria to convince people they must surrender their private property, privacy, and human rights in order to survive. Would an ethically challenged scientific community work with an even more ethically challenged political class to push a climate change hoax that justifies the erosion of individual liberties and the implementation of widespread communism prepackaged in an irrational fear of hydrocarbons? Duh! Of course it would. When governments became the de facto funders of all academic research in the West, impartial, rigorous, and objective scientific inquiry died suddenly too. Now, J.B. Shirk says in the died suddenly era, authorities don't seek truth. They seek politically convenient narratives that protect the entrenched power of the status quo. Boy, is that ever true. False experts fabricate false realities that serve as intellectual prisons for weak minds. And the truly astounding thing is that some of today's most educated people are the ones most susceptible to propaganda. Designer degrees reflect not a proven capacity for critical thinking, but rather a cerebral cerebral vulnerability to rigid programming. Case in point, the trans movement. Nowhere in human history has any society struggled with the biological distinctions separating men from women. Only in our absurd present age would have the most credentialed twisted their neurons into such knots that they know less than those who've never had a written language. One psychologist informed doctors at a medical convention that parents who do not believe that their trans children should be pumped full of sterilizing puberty blockers or have their bodies mutilated are the ones with a mental illness. Ah, 
So increasingly, the expert class insists that people not suffering from psychological delusions are the ones who should be branded as delusional and dangerous. Now, J.B. Shirk says this state the state-sanctioned trans insanity reminds me of a recent diversity exhibition in London that pushed the preposterous lie that Britain was black for 7,000 years before any white people arrived. For the academics involved, fraudulent history is good if it advances politically useful narratives. For everyone else, the DIE-obsessed experts just look crazy. But here's his point. He says, at some point, a critical mass of people will reject a governing system overrun by misanthropes, lunatics, sadists, and liars. Populations do not obey those undeserving of respect. And when respect for authorities dies suddenly, well, J.B. Shirk says, old orders will not survive. What a great article. I really like, I like his take on, on stuff. And in particular, his take on on what is happening to this country. And I also like the fact that he's a very solution-oriented writer as well. Definitely one of my favorites. Okay, two quick articles I want to touch on in the closing moments here. This one is the article of the day. And this is actually, it's, it's from the archives of the Foundation for Economic Education. If there's a silver lining to all the dysfunction that we see going on around us right now, it's that... For many people, they are finally starting to wake up. They're starting to recognize, wow, this is not the way things ought to be. In fact, the unpopular truth that they are beginning to see is that Washington can't solve our problems, but civil society can. Well, what's the difference between Washington and civil society? I would advise you click on that article and see for yourself. Civil society is what you're likely to encounter as you're going about your your day-to-day life. Washington, D.C., it kind of has to insert itself into your life. One final note here, and this is the article I'd like to finish on. Uh, This is from Charles Kerblich. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. This is from the Brownstone Institute. And it's a terrific article on the degree to which everyone was propagandized during the pandemic. If you want to know the propaganda Looney Tunes, this this is a great place to start. In this case, uh, Charles Kerblich says, I remember my history textbooks explaining the use of cartoonish figures as propaganda during the two world wars. So imagine for a moment the inspiring Rosie the Riveter and Uncle Sam contrasted against the overbearing, dull, and cartoonish displays, displays rather of the fascists and communists. Now he says, I was inspired by Rosie. And at the time, I viewed the cartoons of our enemies out of context and wondered, how could anybody be influenced by by cartoonish pastiche caricatures? Well, today, the information war of cartoonish potpourri completely overwhelms us. He says, we're awash with memes, short-form video content, tweets, posts, reposts, likes, etc., We've all, viewed this, we've all viewed this content, and when it inspires some emotional response, whether it's joy, laughter, anger, indignation, or surprise, we forward it on to the next person. Virality is now an everyday feature of life. Now, he says, virality with this ease of spread is a fairly novel psychic phenomenon for the human race. So when a novel physical pathogen came along, both the disease and the memes, cartoons, and propaganda began to spread. Confronted on both physical and psychic fronts, some incredibly bizarre and often vindictive behavior resulted. And it's not the first time this happened. 
In China, after the communist revolution, farming was collectivized. Newly mandated agricultural procedures or practices were disruptive and food production began to falter. One of the new mandates during the Great Leap Forward was the commencement of the Four Pests campaign. Rather than go back to what had worked before or allow markets to work, the authorities settled on a seemingly sensible solution. Rats, mosquitoes, flies, and sparrows, yes, the small bird, would be eliminated. And with these pests eradicated, the models projected food production would exceed all previous levels in every metric. Now, slaughtering birds isn't exactly something that comes naturally, though, so populations had to be informed. Cartoons and memes were created. I have to admit, this is pretty good artwork. But it shows them taking out the rats, the birds, the flies, the mosquitoes. Interestingly, the propaganda campaign targeted children in particular, and it was popular. After school, the children would set up ladders to destroy sparrow nests, and in the evening, when the sparrows would return to the roost, they would bang pots and pans that scared the birds and kept them in flight until they died from exhaustion and fell out of the air. So it was not only fun, but they were heroically stopping the spread of disease and conquering nature in support of their nation. Now, the campaign against the sparrows was quite effective, and the old Taoist philosophy of harmony with nature was abandoned, and the sparrow population was utterly decimated. The dissonant harmonies were ignored. Mankind would usurp nature, displace it, and rule in its stead. However, dissonant harmonies called to be resolved. And in this case, the sudden disappearance of the sparrows resulted in ecological disaster. Sparrows did eat the seeds needed for planting, but they also ate the insects that fed on the crop. In particular, locusts. Lacking a predator to control their population, the number of locusts boomed. They swarmed and ate everything they could. Combined with a drought... The Great Chinese Famine was the result. Estimates are between 15 and 55 million souls died from starvation during this era. So today, we view these cartoons from the abundance of our own homes, and we believe that, well, if I were in China during this time, I wouldn't have conducted myself in such a silly manner. Banging pots and pans to scare birds to death? Well, our cartoons and our context and narratives are different But the psychic phenomenon remains the same. Wearing a mask, social distancing, closing school, shuttering businesses doesn't exactly come naturally. So the the population must be informed, and that's where the propaganda really came into play. I hope you'll take a look at this article. I'm including it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, show notes for February 12th of 2024. This is The Brian Hyde Show.